Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the wetlands bill sent to the governor for his signature. That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines. A British petroleum refinery in northwest Indiana repeatedly violated air pollution standards for soot emissions between 2015 and 2018, a federal judge ruled in a lawsuit brought by environmental advocates as reported by the Associated Press. U.S. District Judge Philip Simon issued his decision April 14th. The Sierra Club and the Environmental Integrity Project sued BP in 2019 under the Federal Clean Air Act after Indiana officials declined to take formal action against the company and its sprawling refinery in Whiting, 15 miles southeast of Chicago. Simon issued his ruling largely on the results of nine pollution tests the oil giant provided to the Indiana Department of Environmental Management from 2015 to 2018. In eight of the tests, boilers at the refinery released soot concentrations that exceeded permitted limits. BP was legally obligated to fix the violations and retest its emissions, but it failed to do so each time, Simon said. Simon has not ruled on whether BP must pay monetary damages. Bowden Quinn, director of Sierra Club Hoosier Chapter, called the ruling a major victory, quote, Today's ruling stamps out BP's profits over people approach and ensures it will be held accountable for endangering Northwest Indianans' health and safety with their dangerous emissions, end quote, Quinn said. A BP spokesman said the company is reviewing Simon's ruling. Indiana Public Radio reports that one of Indiana's largest coal plants is expected to close in the next seven years. Indiana Michigan Power had already planned to close half of the Rockport coal plant in Spencer County, but until now the fate of the plant's other half was up in the air. That's because the other half of the plant wasn't owned by the utility, but by a corporate financial services company. But this week, Indiana Michigan Power's parent company, American Electric Power, said it would purchase that half of the plant so that both coal units can retire by 2028. The company is building both wind and solar capacity to replace coal. A bill that would allow Indiana to oversee federal coal ash requirements in the state 
through a permitting program is now headed to the governor's desk for final approval. If signed into law, Senate Bill 271 would begin the process of establishing a state coal ash permitting program, officially known as coal combustion residuals, under the Water Infrastructure Improvements for the Nation Act, passed in 2016. The bill would allow the state to oversee the closure of many of the state's coal ash ponds instead of the Environmental Protection Agency, a change supported by coal ash producing industries in the state. Environmental advocacy groups opposed the bill, saying the state permitting program could be used to allow, quote, problematic disposal practices, end quote. Trails have reopened following a wildfire at Indiana Dunes National Park in the northwestern part of the state. Fire crews and park staff have ensured all trails and visitor areas impacted by the fire are safe from any dangerous trees and other hazards, the National Park Service said Monday. But there are numerous dead trees and branches away from trails that can fall and are extremely dangerous, according to the Park Service. The 425-acre Miller Woods wildfire in Gary started on April 2nd. The cause of the fire remains under investigation. No injuries or damage to private property have been reported. According to the American Lung Association's 2021 State of the Air report, which covers the years 2017-19, about 40% of Americans are living in locations with poor air quality. That comes to over 135 million people. People of color are some three times more likely to routinely breathe polluted air than white people. Also, People of color are as much as 61% more likely than whites to live in a county with failing air quality grades. The report focuses on tracking fine particulate matter in the air that transportation, manufacturing, power plants, and other sources emit. The report ranks cities on the basis of their air quality, and Los Angeles had the worst air pollution levels in the nation. Other California cities and counties also had poor air pollution levels, as did the counties of Harrison, Texas, Salt Lake in Utah, and Maricopa in Arizona. Primarily, western wildfires are responsible for the poor air quality in western states, releasing large amounts of particulate matter. Michael Regan, the first black person to lead the EPA, has directed the agency staff to, quote, infuse equity and environmental justice principles and priorities into all EPA practices, policies, and programs, end quote. Before that, President Biden had instructed all federal agencies to develop environmental justice policies and pledged that 40% of climate and infrastructure spending would be directed toward the communities most affected by environmental injustice, poor communities and communities of color. Because of the placement of highways and industrial facilities, black people are exposed to 38% more polluted air than white people are. In parts of the U.S., exposure to toxins from vehicles are two-thirds higher for black people than for white people. Black children are five times more likely than white ones to be treated in a hospital for asthma. 
Reagan's directive indicates that under his administration, the EPA will consult more extensively with affected communities and will be harder on companies that violate air and water pollution regulations, with an emphasis, quote, on cornerstone environmental statutes and civil rights laws in communities overburdened by pollution. We need to focus more on our efforts to uplift all communities, regardless of the money in their pockets, their race, or their zip codes, end quote. The U.S. currently spends approximately 10 times as much on fossil fuel subsidies as it does on education. Introduced on April 15th by Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Elon Omar, the End Polluter Welfare Act would eliminate $150 billion in tax loopholes and federal subsidies for fossil fuel companies over the next decade. It would eliminate income tax credits for drilling and coal plant construction, tax breaks for energy companies, and permission for fossil fuel companies to pay below market royalty rates for oil and gas production, among other things. The bill also proposes a ban on taxpayer-funded research and development programs for the fossil fuel industry. The bill would have huge benefits for the planet. Colin Reese, a campaigner with the environmental nonprofit Oil Change U.S., said, quote, Climate leadership means confronting the oil, gas, and coal industries head-on, and the End Polluter Welfare Act is a key piece of the puzzle. Ending public giveaways to the richest industry in the history of the earth is long overdue, and this bill would be a tremendous step towards a just and equitable phase-out of fossil fuels." End quote. States are approving the installation of giant fuel tanks in spite of their commitments to decreasing climate-disrupting emissions and health concerns with the tanks. For example, in the Los Angeles area, 11 new tank projects are underway, mostly in communities of color. The tanks, shaped like giant tuna fish cans, are designed to store crude oil, but they release poisonous gases. The Marathon Petroleum Corporation is building six new tanks, each 69 feet tall and 240 feet in diameter, at its refinery that connects the Los Angeles Harbor neighborhood of Wilmington and the city of Carson. A review of 16 studies published recently in the journal Environmental Health found that people who live near refineries in so-called fence-line communities had a 30% increased risk of developing leukemia, which is linked to benzene exposure. On average, Los Angeles refineries release 34 times more of that carcinogen than they report. Marathon said it's expanding tank capacity because the largest supertanker ships hold so much crude oil, about 1.8 million barrels each, that the refinery doesn't have the room to store it without the tanks. Meanwhile, before the tankers can finish unloading their oil, they anchor nearby, their engine emissions polluting the air. The Daily Mail reports that as climate change continues to threaten the habitat of the polar bear, the endangered creatures are being pushed further into contact with other bears. In Alaska, this has led to crossbreeding with native grizzlies and the creation of pizzly bears, also called a growler bear. 
this hybrid species has been known to occur both in the wild and in captivity. It also appears the pisley could withstand the effects of global warming. This new type of bear is more resilient to climate change and better suited for warmer temperatures, said paleontologist Larissa DeSantis. Quote, it is not looking good for polar bears, end quote. Polar bears are in rapid decline, and DeSantis blames their disappearance on their specialized diet of blubber. With the decline in sea ice, the animals are unable to hunt seals and may have a hard time ad adapting to a warming arctic. Quote, I've studied saber-toothed cats. Fossil records show they, too, had specialized diets, and when the food supply went away, so did they. End quote, DeSantis said. Meanwhile, Alaska and Canada's grizzly bears are reportedly moving north because of the increase in temperatures where they are. So the two types of bear are being pushed closer together by the changing climate. DeSantis and her team compared the mouths of polar bears to those of grizzly bears, which have shown the ability to adapt in periods of warming. The polar bear and grizzly bear shared a common ancestor 500,000 to 600,000 years ago, but then they diverged, DeSantis said. According to a new report published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, millions of minuscule pieces of plastic, called microplastics, measuring less than two-tenths of an inch and amounting in total to thousands of tons, are billowing in the air and even being blown across entire continents. Scientists say the situation is likely to worsen greatly and could have serious effects on human health. Previous researchers have found microplastics in the ocean, bottled water, and even human feces, but until now, their presence in the atmosphere has not been well understood. Quote, microplastics have the capacity to disrupt nearly every ecosystem, not to mention human health, end quote, said the report's lead author, Janice Brani, an environmental scientist at Utah State University. She noted that the issue of microplastics is also important to the climate crisis and that the two issues are entwined because plastics are a product of fossil fuels, the burning of which is the main driver of the climate crisis. A new study shedding light on just how much ice could be lost around Antarctica if the international community fails to urgently rein in planet heating emissions, bolstering arguments for bolder climate policies. The study, passed last Thursday in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, found that over a third of the area of all Antarctic ice shelves, including 67% of area on the Antarctic Peninsula, could be at risk of collapsing if global temperatures soar to 4 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. Many climate scientists now conclude that limiting warming to 2 degrees centigrade is impossible. The Trump administration focused on exploitation and profits, so four years have been lost in limiting climate change. A common expectation is that our best hope is limiting warming to 3 to 4 degrees. 
New research from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this month looked at maps of human habitation over the last 12,000 years and confirmed that indigenous societies have indeed been the best caretakers of biodiversity throughout modern human existence. The study found that more than half of the Earth has been sustainably shaped and managed by indigenous or traditional societies. The study was a product of research from 18 researchers from multiple institutions around the world that specialize in a number of fields, including geography, archaeology, ecology, and anthropology. They looked at land use patterns in the last 10,000 years and found some form of human footprint caused by hunting, cultivation, or burning. And now for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk about the wetlands bill sent to the governor. The controversial Senate Bill 389 began as a bill seeking to revoke all state protections for Indiana's few remaining wetlands. It made its way through the legislature's shedding, then regaining drastic reductions to state protections in place since 2004. The version of SB 389 that passed the Indiana House of Representatives and Senate and is now on the governor's desk for signature more than halves the amount of wetlands protected by the isolated wetlands law, a bill that defined which wetlands were regulated by the state and established a way for landowners to be able to develop their land while still preserving the state's crucial wetlands. The current bill was authored in the Senate by three members of the Indiana Builders Association, which supports the bill and stands to profit from reduced development costs that occur if wetland protections are removed. The bill is also supported by other powerful lobbying organizations like the Indiana Farm Bureau and the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, a fact likely to influence the governor's decision. The current version of the bill is being touted by proponents as a middle ground between a total repeal of all state protections for wetlands and the maintaining of current profit-reducing wetland protections. This is Senator Chris Garten, one of the main authors of the bill. When it left here, we voted on a full repeal of the current wetland statute in hopes that we reach some middle ground through further vetting of this, through conversations with stakeholders, IDEM, and our fellow other chamber members alike. It came back in that place. I think we have found a middle ground. On the other side of the bill is a coalition of dozens of environmental groups, conservation groups, hunting organizations, city governments and their departments, regional river basin commissions, and religious organizations that argue the bill would be disastrous for the state's wetlands and would cause a damaging ripple effect to the environment, to wildlife, and to infrastructure susceptible to flooding. The group says it would cost millions of taxpayer dollars to mitigate the potential consequences of the bill. The two sides disagree on the impact and absence of state protections for Indiana's wetlands would have on Hoosiers and on wildlife. SB 389's proponents have used the language in the isolated wetlands law describing wetland types to determine the potential impact of their loss. Wetlands in Indiana are currently designated as one of three classes determined by its hydrologic function and how much wildlife it supports. Indiana state law assigns class one wetland classification to wetlands where at least 50% of the land has been disturbed or affected by human activity or development and supports minimal wildlife or hydrologic function. Class three wetlands are minimally disturbed by human activity and support more than minimal wildlife or hydrologic functions. Class two wetlands are defined as not being either class one or class three. According to IDEM, of the 800,000 acres of wetlands left in Indiana, about 425,000 acres are classified as class one, 250,000 acres are class two, and between 10 and 20,000 acres are class three. 
The remaining 100,000 or so acres of Indiana wetlands are protected by federal law. Garten argued that, based on the legal definition, the elimination of protections for Class I wetlands would have little effect on flooding, hydrologic functions, or wildlife habitats. Let's take a moment and educate ourselves about how we define Class Ones. If you go down to the very last line of the Class I definition, the wetland does not possess significant hydrologic function. So if flooding is the issue, how is that solving it now? The answer is it's not, because flooding's not the issue with these. If flooding was the issue, that would be a significant hydrologic function. If it has a significant hydrologic function, it's not a class one wetland. So it's very important to note that a wetland, all wetlands are not the same. Experts from multiple scientific disciplines, including wetland scientists, hydrologists, soil chemists, ecologists, and urban planners disagree. They say the loss of wetlands in Indiana, possibility of protections are removed, would result in a ripple effect across the state. While wetlands make up only about 4% of the state, they provide a habitat for 50% of animal species with small or declining populations. Besides wildlife, wetlands also serve important water management functions. Wetlands trap and slowly release water, filtering it through sediment and vegetation before it reaches surface and groundwater systems. The St. Joseph River Basin Commission and Maumee River Basin Commission, groups representing a total of 13 northeastern and eastern Indiana counties, oppose the bill. St. Joseph River Basin Commission Director Matt Mearsman testified to the House Environmental Affairs Committee about the effect reduced wetlands protections would have on the seven Indiana counties the commission serves. We have found a direct connection between wetland loss and flooding issues. We've also found a connection between the cost of water management for our local governments and wetland loss. Over the past 125 years, the amount of average annual precipitation in the state has increased by 5.6 inches. The precipitation is falling in short amounts of time, leading to an increase in flood risk across most of the state. Without Indiana's wetlands, local governments would have to spend millions of dollars to replicate the natural functions performed by wetlands, including water filtration and water management to prevent flooding, Beersman said. Those functions are already being tested in some parts of the state, including the St. Joseph River Basin, where multiple historic floods have stricken the area within the past five years. The St. Joseph River at South Bend has experienced historic crests regularly since the turn of the century. The river there has experienced 21 of its 25 historic crests within the past 25 years. That's according to National Weather Service records. Flooding challenges are not confined to single communities. They are shared by other communities downriver. Elkhart and Goshen have also experienced multiple historic crests since 2000. Several communities have already spent millions of taxpayer dollars to improve their infrastructure to deal with the increased flooding resulting from climate change, with some taking on hundreds of millions of dollars in loans from the state and federal government, even with wetlands still in place. Representative Maureen Bauer, who represents Indiana House District 6, said South Bend has spent nearly $6 million since 2018 to fix infrastructure damaged by flooding and will bid for $2 million in infrastructure projects. Indiana will always be at risk for flooding. Data tracked by the National Weather Service ranked Indiana second to flood-related deaths behind Kentucky. Most of those deaths in 2020 were while driving, result of flooded roadways. Wetlands absorb excess rain. The problem is since 1991, Indiana has lost 85% of its original wetlands which is why a bipartisan legislature decided to act nearly 20 years ago protecting our wetlands 
is a way to be a more resilient state in times of natural disaster. Wetlands are our last line of defense. Under the 2004 law Bauer referenced, landowners could receive permits to develop wetlands on their property, but would be required to replace the wetlands in order to preserve their functions or pay the Indiana Department of Natural Resources to do so through the in-lieu fee program. The class of the wetland determines how much land a landowner would have to mitigate or how much they would have to pay to get that done. But not all of the state's wetlands were guaranteed protection under the 2004 law. The isolated wetlands law has multiple exemptions for wetland permits, including for farming, maintenance, and other activities. SB 389 upends the 2004 law, eliminating all permitting requirements, including mitigation requirements for Class 1 wetlands and providing numerous exemptions for Class 2 wetlands. The bill also removes all state protections for streams that flow only during and after rain or snowmelt, called ephemeral streams. The bill would maintain most protections for Class 3 wetlands, which are important, but only make up about 2.5% of the state's total wetlands and would establish a 14-member wetlands task force to research and develop strategies for the remaining wetlands. Senator Susan Glick said she thinks landowners need a seat at the table, but not at the expense of the environment. But I'm not in favor of doing damage to our ecology. I'm not in favor of destroying a system that, that purifies our water, that protects our aquifer, that takes and areas of this state which are flood prone and makes them dangerous for building, for living. You're destroying something that it's taking hundreds of thousands of years to create. Governor Eric Holcomb will have to decide whether the economic benefit of SB 389 outweighs the total costs to local governments and Indiana's natural resources. And for Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. Take a fossil discovery hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, April 30th at 2 p.m. Meet at the Canyon Inn for a trip back in time when Indiana was an ocean floor. Learn about ancient creatures from the skeletons left behind in the limestone. Make sure you wear footwear that you don't mind getting wet. And please continue to practice safe distancing and wear masks when indoors. Brown County State Park will have their annual Moral Mushroom Festival on Saturday, May 1st, all day long. This event includes mushroom presentations and hikes, as well as a Moral Mushroom Sale. Be sure to practice safe distancing and wear a mask when indoors. For further information, contact Patrick Halter at 812-988-5240 or go to p-h-a-u-l-t-e-r at dnr.in.gov. There will be a welcome back weekend at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, May 1st from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. The Pioneer Village will open at 9 a.m. Check out the lineup of great programs, events, and guided hikes. You will be required to wear a mask while indoors. To celebrate Arbor Day, 2021, Sycamore Land Trust will provide free native tree seedlings on Saturday, May 1st at Blooming Foods East and Blooming Foods Near West starting at 10 a.m. while supplies last. You will be able to choose between red oak, tulip tree, hazelnut, and button bush. There is a limit of one free tree seedling per person. 
The event is being sponsored by Bloomington Hospital. And that wraps up our show for this week. The Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.